Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Ahmed Mazmi, a PhD candidate at Princeton University. Today we are here to talk to Professor Dilip Minan, the editor along with Professor Nishad Zaidi of uh, the Hot of Press book, Cosmopolitan Cultures and Oceanic Thought. Uh, the book is edited uh, by both of them, and uh, Professor Dilip uh, Menon is a historian and currently the Millen Chair in Indian uh, Studies at the University of Witwatersrand uh, in South Africa. And Nishad Zaidi, who is not joining us today, unfortunately, is Professor and former Head Department of English at uh, Jamia Millia Islamia in New Delhi, India. Today's book, Cosmopolitan Cultures and Oceanic Thought, published by Routledge in 2023, imagines the ocean as central to understanding the world and its connections in history, literature, and social sciences. Introducing the central conceptual category of ocean as method, it analyzes the histories of movement and traversing across connected spaces of water and land, sedimented in literary text, folklore, local histories, autobiographies, music, and performance. It explores the constant flow of people, material, and ideologies across the waters and how they make their presence felt in a cosmopolitan thinking of the connections of the world. Going beyond violent histories of slavery and indenture that generate global connections, it tracks the movements of sailors, boatmen, religious teachers, merchants, and adventurers. The essays in this volume summon up this misdented uh, history in which land and water are ever linked, a significant rethinking of world history. This volume will be of great interest to scholars and researchers of history, especially connected history and maritime history, literature, and global South studies. Welcome, Professor Minon, to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, and thanks so much for taking the time to talk about the book. Well, thank you so much, Ahmed, for having me. This is my second time on 
New Books Network. Uh, three years ago, I was interviewed uh, along with my colleague, uh, Dr. Kaveh Yazdani, on a book that we edited on capitalism. So those of your listeners who are interested can go back to that. And I, of course, I realize this is a narcissistic plug on my part, but then uh, academics like publicity we get. Thank you for joining us today. And yes, the listeners definitely should give a listen to that great podcast. Um, we would like to start the conversation by learning about the the editors uh, in this case. So can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, where you grew up, where you went to school, how you became interested in, in this field of study, and if you would like to mention any influential mentors. Uh, thank you so much, Ahmed. Uh... Uh, I'm, uh, my apologies on behalf of Nishad Zaidi, who could not be here today. Uh, uh, speaking for myself, I was born in India in the state of Kerala, which some of you may know is on the southwestern coast of India. So the ocean was uh, beside my head even as I was born. But I went to school and university largely in northern India. And uh, through my schooling and my university education, I realized that South India didn't figure much in the syllabi, and that certainly the ocean was something that was really given the go-by as most of the histories tended to concentrate on uh, the terrestrial. So land empires, revenue settlements, uh, colonialism and its uh, procedures and protocols of law and order and so on and so forth. So I began to think very seriously about the ocean and about Kerala. And then I realized a mystifying thing at that point, that while uh, people in Kerala lived by the sea, their uh, sea didn't register in their literary and in their aesthetic imaginations. And that was the beginning of a whole process of reflection, which led to the writing of an essay in 1999, which actually tried to handle this puzzle. I also went to university in Delhi at a time when the subaltern studies had just taken off. So the uh, primary impetus to move away from traditional old-fashioned histories, which were largely empirical, towards a more a conceptual engagement, particularly through the work of Ranajit Guha, who passed away recently at the age of uh, 100, almost as he reached 100. So Subaltern Studies and Ranajit Guha, who I met very briefly as an undergraduate, were the primary impulses in many senses for thinking that history needed to be conceptual. It needed to engage with issues that were not merely the narration of facts about a particular subject, but to ask oneself the prior question as to the absences and the exclusions that were central to these structures of remembering. That forgetting and sidelining was as much an important part of remembering, and that's how I began to engage with, uh, first with uh, issues of caste and subalternity in India, and then now with uh, the study of the ocean. Great. Thank you for sharing uh, that with us. Let's start by the introduction to the edited volume. Can you first tell us uh, the, the backstage of making this volume? Uh, what was preemptive uh, for it, uh, and how did you bring all of these scholars together to to write the volume? And then uh, going on, can you let us know how did you bring these different chapters together uh, and and under the th the theme of cosmopolitan cultures? Uh, thanks, Amit. Uh, the two uh, prior uh, conceptual and political things that I'd like to state. 
One of the things about the volumes that I've been editing of late and the conferences that I've been organizing arises from uh, two fundamental understandings of the domain of academic knowledge. The first relates to the fact that very often uh, senior scholars tend to produce volumes with other senior scholars. So you find uh, blurbs at the back of books saying the finest scholars in the discipline and so on and so forth. And I was very conscious that if you are to produce new knowledge, one needs to engage with the younger generation. So in the previous volume, uh, concept uh, Changing Theory, Concepts on the Global South, we had essays by people uh, as distinguished as Arjuna Padare, as well as uh, a student uh, who had just begun her master's in Canada. And so it was a landscape of thinking which all brings in generations. And also, I think new knowledge comes from those who are younger to us. That's the first thing. The second thing is to engage with the very idea of the monograph, which is central to the social science and humanities, that as we expand our notion of what should be considered by the historical discipline as we move into thinking from the global south, oceanic cultures, we are dealing with a polyglot environment, we're dealing with multiple geographic spaces, a proliferation of space and time, and this demands that we work with as a collective, that we return to the fundamental principle of thinking and of intellectual activity that we need to think alongside others. So that was what uh, underlies this volume, Cosmopolitan Cultures, which again has uh, scholars who are very distinguished in their field as well as those who are just beginning their PhDs. So the occasion for doing this volume was uh, of came from uh, the request for an essay from a new journal uh, to rethink the uh, idea of globalization uh, in an, a kind of dialogue with Arjuna Padre's work. And that's when I began to uh, uh, think with Amitav Ghosh's work, The Great Derangement. And I thought to myself that when we think about globalization these days, we have to be very conscious of uh, global warming, climate change, the Anthropocene, that we have to think with water rather than with land. And what if does what are the implications and entailments of thinking with water and movements across the water, not only of people, but of ideas. And so I wrote this uh, essay called Walking on Water, Globalization and History, uh, which then uh, caught Nishat Zaidi's attention as she taught at Jamia Millia Islamia. And she said, well, why not do a project together? So we got some funding from the government of India we organized uh, two sets of lecture uh, lectures that are uh, that were done in online uh, because this was the period of COVID, as you remember, between 2020, uh, 2020 and 2022. Then we had an international conference, which was again online. And uh, one volume, the first volume that came out of this was the volume Ocean as Method, uh, which dealt with uh, issues of how do we think beyond the vast scholarship that exists on uh, the historical, vast historical scholarship that exists on the ocean, you know, people like K.N. Chaudhary and uh, Marcus Redeker and so on, and to try and think with uh, more conceptual and more literary issues how the ocean is as much metaphor as a living presence. And so the uh, volume, Cosmopolitan Cultures and Oceanic Thought, brings together not only people who are historians, but literary scholars, uh, religious scholars, architectural historians, and so on and so forth. 
the fundamental idea being that uh, we need to think with the ocean uh, beyond the historical archive. How do we engage with questions of depth as much as surface? A lot of histories of the ocean deal with what happens on the surface. Questions of what uh, Brathwaite, Kamal Brathwaite, called tidalectics, the fact that the ocean and land are linked together in uh, in people's imaginations as well as people's lives, engaging with uh, more conceptual issues like that of Philip Steinberg, the question of wet ontologies. How do we create an ontology? How do we deal with ontologies that are engaged with water in a very physical sense? So we're thinking about either the smell of water, the feel of water, the fact that water is something that will eventually uh, might uh, claim our landed spaces, our terrestrial spaces, as we know. By 2050, most of the, a lot of cities like Mumbai, Calcutta, a new uh, cities in Florida may soon be submerged by the ocean. So it's a cluster of issues about global warming as well as engaging with water as such. I think that was, those were the premises with which we did the volume. Thank you for sharing that. Can you tell us about what you mean by oceanic imagination and cosmopolitan cultures in this volume that you address in the introduction, thinking through history across the waters? Well, briefly, I, I think the question of oceanic thought relates back to these, uh, as I said, wet ontologies, that we're dealing with questions of songs that move across the ocean. We're dealing with texts and theology. So the question of the Indian Ocean Islam is very prominent in one section, as you know. Uh, that was one idea, one way of thinking about oceanic thought, so that we're not really only concerned with material histories, such as the wonderful work of Lale Khalili, for example, it looks at capitalism on the uh, Indian Ocean, I mean capitalism on the ocean, the container trade, and so on and so forth. With regard to cosmopolitan cultures, I thought this might be a way of engaging with the very idea of subaltern cosmopolitanism, where we move away from a kind of etiolated idea of Kantian cosmopolitanism, where we are actually dealing with lives of people who traverse and sit astride uh, national geography, so that when you think about uh, the lives of refugees, Sri Lankan refugees, for example, or Syrian refugees, that they are traversing geographies which are much larger than the nation state. When you think about Indian Ocean Islam, there is a spread that extends all the way from the Middle East to Southeast Asia. And uh, there is uh, the circulation of people, of texts and of ideas, so that even as people might be circumscribed by the territories that they inscribe, their thought inhabits much wider horizons. And this cosmopolitanism is not only subaltern, it's also, in one sense, uh, governed by the frictions that arise from ideological contentions, from the histories of states and their encroachment on the sea. So that we're talking about a cosmopolitanism that is not merely some kind of sentimental conceptualization or indeed a kind of proleptic desire, but is actually talking about a lived cosmopolitanism where people occupy spaces that are much larger than our notion of nation and region. Yes, uh, the edited the, the volume is divided into four sections. The first section is the poetics of fluvial cosmopolitanism. The second uh, section is oceanic narratives. The third one 
is constructing space. And the last one is religion, knowledge, and law across the oceans. At first glance, we find many disciplines from literary studies to history to anthropology. Uh, so what's your opinion on this uh, transdisciplinary, let's say, uh, confluence uh, of contributions and thinking about uh, oceanic uh, thought? What do we gain by bringing all of these disciplines together in conversation? I think as a historian, and to go back to uh, my uh, formation as a historian, particularly the impetus offered by subaltern studies, where uh, there was a bringing together of uh, French post-structuralism, German idealism, and British Marxism. So we were dealing with a landscape of thinking that was multi-textual, it was uh, multidisciplinary, and that became, in one sense, the condition and the horizon of one's thinking. And particularly when one deals with the ocean, one is dealing again with not only the texture of lives on the water, one is having to deal with what Bachelard might have called the poetics of space and of water. You see, you need to engage with philosophy, you need to engage with anthropology, you need to engage with history. One needs to engage with texts like Moby Dick, which create a a narrative that brings together land and the water. So immediately you're faced with the question that you can't be plowing your own lonely furrow or as uh, historians tend to do, uh, cultivating their own little gardens, that one needs to have a larger and more expansive vision, which consists of a conversation across disciplines. If, uh, and I think uh, certain themes demand that you have to be more expansive in your vision. Right, and this is really fruitful in, in especially applying different methods and, for example, reading text and bringing theory to uh, draw new insights from specific regions and histories and periodizations that we find here. And the volume covers a vast geography in 15 chapters that would be impossible to cover in, in this conversation. And I would ask right. readers to take a look at the 15 chapters uh, to find different insights about different uh, histories and geographies and uh, insights from the different parts of the Indian Ocean. But in, in reading these chapters uh, and, and, and bringing them together in this edited volume, are there running themes across these chapters that you observe? Do you think that we can talk about oceanic unity or uh, fragmentation perhaps? Uh, and and the word the very word of uh, cosmopolitanism has been contested again and again as uh, let's say idealistic or, or romanticizing connectivity, uh, right? Uh, so how would you address these these uh, contentions and this scholarship? Right. I mean, I think the thing is that we tend to think uh, generally in binaries, this or that, uh, you know. And uh, I think the idea of thinking with land and water to think uh, with questions of cosmopolitanism, which move beyond mere, the merely theoretical conception to actually study cosmopolitanism within lived histories, which requires us to engage with uh, the fact that cosmopolitanism is indeed not the preserve of states and of intellectuals such as ourselves, who imagine cosmopolitanism as occupying several airports as we go to multiple conferences across the world, but to actually think about the lived life of, for example, migrants and refugees who, as they travel across the ocean, 
summon up earlier histories of travel, engage with the cultures that they uh, live in, so that, for example, the Sri Lankan Tamils propelled outwards after the civil war in Sri Lanka land up in Italy, for example, learn Italian, or land up in Canada, and uh, you know, and Toronto becomes a home of a, a certain Sri Lankan Tamil diaspora, or land up in Paris, and they begin to learn French. And so you're talking about uh, people who actually live that cosmopolitanism, but to but that's uh, to not to dwell on the uh, too much on the idea. Part one, which deals with the poetics of fluvial cosmopolitanism, as we call it, lived cosmopolitanism on the ocean. Uh, there's an essay by Isabel Hoffmeyer that takes up the idea of hydrocolonialism, and this is actually uh, very interesting because when you think about colonialism, we tend to think about the conquest of land, the creation of territorial settlements, uh, the pa pacification of peoples, the structures of revenue, law and order, and so on. And what she looks at in the idea of hydrocolonialism is the fact that colonialism traverses the world through the ocean, creates these penal settlements, uh, across, you know, so creates this chain of islands which are in, uh, in uh, which are in for our carceral uh, settlements. We are thinking about the fact that uh, the traversing the ocean also creates uh, a certain oceanic imaginary which unites colonialism and circulates, as Chris Bailey pointed out fairly early on in 1989 in his Imperial Meridian, a vocabulary, a grammar of being and of control and of possession, which stems from these oceanic connections so that Africa, Ireland, India, Australia come to be connected through a, as he puts it, a vocabulary of control. Uh, Eleka Burma's wonderful essay, which looks at the rhyme of the ancient mariner and uh, 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 Herman Melville's Moby Dick, and talks about particular instances in these uh, which connect up not only uh, the human engagement with the ocean, but the violence of human engagement with the ocean, the killing of the albatross, the killing of the whale, and the relation between the human and the non-human on the ocean, which is not a history which is... Uh, particularly in some sense uh, uh, admiring of the enterprise of restless energy and of adventure which we tend to associate with the ocean, we are actually talking about multiple histories of violence which sit alongside the histories of violence that relate to slavery and so on. Uh, Gita Patel takes up the question of one individual and his a few fruitless engagement with the East India Company as he tries to engage them in questions of the privateering that he's engaging in and the constant pleas for a recognition of his enterprise by the East India Company as it expands across the oceans. So questions of how do, how do uh, how our ships commanded, how our finances brought in for trade and so on. And finally, there's an essay by Kelsey McFall which actually deals with the sensory experience of the ocean, the, and she reads the wind, as it were, in the Horn of Africa, looking at a range of literary texts that deal with the wetness of the ocean, the smell of the ocean, the olfactory and the sensory. So the poetics of flu fluvial cosmopolitanism, the first section actually deals with these multiple histories which actually engage with water, 
and beings in the water, humans, animals, smells, and so on and so forth. The second uh, part, and I will stop after the second part to allow you uh, an intervention. The second part deals with oceanic narratives. Uh, there's an essay by Swati Maitra on the world of the uh, world of the Bay of Bengal and piracy on the Bay of Bengal, and looking at how a particular individual who's captured by pirates and become an Indian, who becomes a court poet in the Burmese court, and rewrites a history that comes from Western India of a relation between a king and a queen. Uh, in, a, in the short time that we have, it's difficult to summarize the plot for you, but it's a, a something that is a landed history in Western India is set to drift in this poetic enterprise by this person who has been uh, captured by pirates, lands up in the court of Burma, and then becomes exposed to another imagination. And uh, an essay by Esan Ehtisham, which looks at songs in the Indian Ocean, which looks at how Persian, Arabic, Malayalam uh, circulate in a, the small space on the southwestern coast of India, and how uh, these war songs are generated as a result of the Portuguese presence in the Western Indian Ocean and the impact on Islamic communities, which, as you know, the Portuguese are very hostile to Islam. Their search for Prester John on the coast of, you know, uh, on, uh, in the east, their search for uh, establishing a Christian kingdom apart from the material and commercial motives. So uh, what Esan does is to look at the circulation of these songs across the Indian Ocean. So again, we are dealing with something that is uh, beyond the uh, material, right? You're thinking about a sonic landscape, and you're thinking about a sonic landscape enabled by the ocean. So as you can see, there's a uh, we are dealing with questions that range across from literary studies to ethnomusicology to archival narratives and literary narratives. Thank you for these teasers. Uh, I wasn't planning to go through the chapters, but now it wouldn't be fair <laughs> if we don't mention the other chapters. So, I will see how clever I am at this. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, I will just uh, refer the readers again to check the rich volumes, uh, I mean, rich chapters in this volume, and they, they truly cover vast geography and histories uh, from the 21st century all the way back to medieval time and, and Batuta and beyond. Uh, but b before we let you go, would you tell us uh, what you're uh, hoping to work on or working on right now uh, and your future projects? Well, in, in, uh, in some sense, this uh, cosmopolitan cultures in oceanic thought represents the end of a project which began with uh, walking on water globalization history. So we have the Oceanus Method volume and then this. But the ongoing project that I have is uh, connected to the larger work that I'm doing on epistemologies from the Global South. So last year, we had a volume called Changing Theory, Concepts from the Global South, which brought together again 20 scholars working with 16 languages, ranging from Zulu to Osa, Persian, Arabic, Sanskrit, to think with producing a conceptual vocabulary from within these languages. As you know, much of social theory is beholden to a Euro-American conceptual universe. 
not only, you know, immediately we leap away very lithely and blithely from Arabia and Bengal to Levinas and Foucault in order to explain what happens in our spaces. So how do we produce an, a conceptual vocabulary and a social theory from our spaces? So the current project that I'm engaged with is a large project, again, involving 19 scholars. It's funded by the ERC. It's uh, led by Anastasia Pilyavsky at King's College London. There are four of us, Lisa Mitchell at University of Pennsylvania, and Uday Chandra, who's in Qatar, in the uh, University of Georgetown, Doha. And what we're doing is we're bringing together 19 scholars who work with 19 Indian languages in order to think with the question of politics. So what does it mean to think India's politics, South Asian politics in the vernacular? And hopefully at the end of five years, we shall have thought about uh, not only how to produce a theory uh, of politics, of how people relate to politics, how people think about politics uh, in South Asia through these 19 languages, but also to think with what we call the demotic. So it's not a, a retreat into text, a retreat into classical tradition, but to work with Bakhtin's plangent formulation that words come to us not from dictionaries, but from the mouths of people. So to create a way of thinking about politics, which engages with how people think with politics, speak about politics, and not necessarily retreating into the realms of a textual tradition of political theory. So that's the work that I'm engaged in right now. That sounds very interesting. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for joining the podcast. And thank you for the listeners for listening to today's episode in which we explored cosmopolitan cultures and oceanic thought published by Routledge in 2023. This is your host, Ahmed Al-Mazmi. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World.